let's begin. We're going to continue our discussion today of the sacraments. Uh, I'll give you a, a brief reminder of how far we got um, before chaos erupted last week. Uh, and uh, thank, <laughs> thanks, Rob. Uh, thank you all for your great questions and interaction. This is sort of what I was hoping uh, that this class on worship would be. We would, we would bounce ideas off of one another. We would go back to God's word. Hopefully that we would all be sharpened together as we uh, consider these things. Uh, but last week we began by simply considering, and we wanted to consider the sacraments in two ways. One, the sacraments as God's communication to us, and two, as our response to God. And, and we just started to get into uh, God's communication to us, thinking about the different ways in Scripture that God uses nonverbal communication. Uh, so some of the signs that he gives of his covenant faithfulness and some of the Ebenezers that the people were commanded to set up and all the ways that God commanded his spiritual realities, unseen realities, to, through visible, tangible things. And we began to discuss uh, through the Westminster Confession, which we're going to come back to this morning. So if you don't have uh, a, a hymnal, you'll want to grab one or some way to access uh, the Westminster. Uh, we began to talk about uh, the direction uh, of of the sacraments, and I was suggesting there are two misunderstandings uh, that we can overcome by understanding uh, the sacraments as God's communication primarily to us. The first misunderstanding was a misunderstanding of direction. We sometimes think that primarily it, it's something we're doing for the Lord, but actually it's something the Lord is doing for us. The second uh, misunderstanding is a, a misunderstanding of content, and we're going to get into that. Uh, and then we're going to look today, Lord willing, at the other side of things. Well, well how do we engage and, and how do we respond to the Lord uh, in the sacraments that he's given us? So before we jump back into that, please join me and we'll open in prayer this morning. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your incredible faithfulness. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, which is symbolized for us, which is shown forth in these visible words, as, as, uh, as Augustine called them. Uh, these sacraments that you have given to your church so that we would see and know uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the way that you join us to him, the way that you sustain us in him. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us clarity of thought and mind today. Help us to understand some of the things of your word. Help us to be enriched as we come to your sacraments, as we come later to your table today. Uh, remind us of what we see there. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of our Savior. Uh, and encourage us, O oh Lord, by your uh, signs and your seals. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to catch back up, uh, let's turn to Westminster Confession of Faith uh, 27.1. should be in the back of your Trinity hymnals. Is it 864? 864. Thank you, Bill. 27.1, this is the section on the sacraments. And just to pick back up where we were... Um, Westminster Confession of Faith 27.1. Here's what it says. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits, and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ, according to to his word. So this is what we saw last time. 
uh, and we were just getting into the idea of, of correcting this misunderstanding of the direction, and, and that's the question that I asked. What difference does it make that the sacraments are primarily something God is giving to us rather than something we're giving to God? And then we had a, a rather robust conversation after that. Um, now, I want to continue that line of thought. One of the other differences that it makes when we think of the sacraments as God's communication to his people comes in this language of a seal. You notice there uh, that the Westminster says sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Now, why do you think that this, the confession uses those two terms? Are they merely synonymous? Could they have done away with one of them? Or does one of these terms add something to our understanding of what the sacraments are? Not just that they symbolize, but, but in some sense they seal. What's the significance of that language there? What do you think? Right, uh, this is not something that we use at all um, in normal conversation. We're familiar with these things. Uh, I think the, the way that the Westminster is putting this forward, and we're going to look at, uh, at Romans 4 in just a minute, so if you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn there. Um, it is a scriptural idea, and there is something uh, above and beyond just a, a symbolism, uh, but we can think of it almost as, as a guarantee, um, you know, Years ago, you, you might imagine, I think I might have used this illustration already, you might imagine some medieval king or some regent somewhere, and he signs his letter and his edict, and they pour the wax on, and he takes his stamp, and he, uh, he impresses his seal upon it. It's his authenticating mark. Well, this is the, the language that the Westminster is using to speak of God's authenticating mark of the covenant of grace. Yeah, Dave. Sure. Okay. Okay. So it authenticates that it is what it's supposed to be, or it, it allows it to be opened on the other side. Okay. Um, so I, I think, so here's where, here's a, a little bit of a distinction. Um, the seal in medieval times would have been that, that wax thing, and, and it would have been, um, you know, it remained sealed as long as that was on there. Uh, and we're not thinking of a seal in, in the sense of it can't be opened without this sort of thing, but, but really more an authentication. Uh, so if that's what the, the cryptographic mark does, sure. Uh, I'm not familiar uh, with such things. I'm sure some other people might be. Um, another equivalent, modern equivalent, would be, say, a, a college diploma. Uh, and it has all the information there, you know, the degree of such and such is conferred upon with all the rights and honors appertaining thereunto by the faculty of such and such. And at the bottom, there's that little gold foil stamp uh, that you have there. Uh, and it's, it's that mark of authentication, uh, that it's a genuine article. And this is the language, actually, that Romans uses in reference to, uh, to Abraham. So Romans chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 9. Can I get somebody to read verses 9 through 12, please? Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. Thank you.
Okay, so notice what's happening here. There is a symbol. It symbolizes, so the, the symbol of uh, circumcision, uh, we don't have to go too far down the line, but it's, it's a cutting off. Uh, and it is uh, for purposes of cleansing uh, and sensitization. Sometimes in the Old Testament you'll see uh, God speaks to his people and he says, you are circumcised uh, in your foreskins, but not in your heart. Your hearts are not sensitive to the Lord. They're not able to be moved. When I speak, uh, your necks are like sinews of iron, and, and your forehead is like brass, he says somewhere else. You're not, you're not willing to be moved to the Lord by the Lord. And that's some of the, the symbolism that shows up uh, in, uh, in circumcision. But it says there's this sign, there's the symbol of circumcision, the, the conveying of the reality, but there's also the seal. So again, it's this thing, that's, it's this authenticating mark that's given from God to Abraham. Now, it is not his righteousness. Circumcision is not Abraham's righteousness. In fact, that's part of what Paul is arguing against in this, uh, this section of Romans. Because you'd get some of the Jews in Paul's day who are saying, well, no, 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 we're Abraham's children because we're circumcised. This is where our righteousness is before the Lord because we're children of Abraham according to the flesh. We've been circumcised. And you get all of these discussions in the New Testament over, well, if, if Gentiles become believers, do they also have to be circumcised? He's saying, well, well, let's not confuse. When we speak of sacraments, we talk about the sign and the thing signified. So you see a sign that says stop, and it, it reminds you of an action that is not the sign, that you, you stop when you come to that intersection. There's a sign, and there's a thing that it signifies. And we can confuse, as some of the Jews were doing in Paul's day, the sign, that, that circumcision, with the actual thing, the righteousness that it was meant to symbolize. And he's saying, no, 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 it, there's a symbolism, but there's also a seal. And don't confuse these things. This is, this is given by God, and it's not righteousness, it's not faith, but it's God's authenticating mark that those who believe will have righteousness, the righteousness that God himself gives. And so it is this way of saying, uh, here's God showing us, it's his gold foil seal, it's his cryptographic, uh, what was the other packet or, or whatever it was? Cryptographic, cryptographic seal, thank you. Um, it is the, the mark that the Lord gives to remind us uh, that he actually means what he says. And that's an important part of, of us not inventing these things, that we don't come up with our own sacraments to, to symbolize what we want them to symbolize, but rather we fall in line with what God has given us because they're his authenticating mark. They're his seal. Okay, so, so we're dealing with this misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding of direction, that the sacraments come primarily from God to show forth uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and also to seal all of his promises, so that we can take these things seriously. The second misunderstanding that I think this helps us to deal with, this idea that the sacraments come from God to us, uh, is a misunderstanding of the content of the sacraments. What is the content? What is the thing signified by the seal? We've already mentioned that, this idea of things, uh, the sign and the thing signified. <coughs> it says in the Westminster Confession, uh, the sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits. So what is the content of the sacraments? What is the content we need to know? When we come to the sacraments, what is it showing forth to us? Cynthia? 
the gospel, okay? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, yeah. The content of the sacraments is Jesus. What do they symbolize to us? They symbolize who Jesus is and all that he's done and all that he is for us. Sometimes we confuse these things. Uh, I don't know if you've ever met someone who uh, professes to be a believer, uh, but they, they don't want to be baptized yet. They've got a few things that they need to iron out first. They believe, they understand that God has, uh, has called them to himself, that he has dealt with their sin, but they're holding back because I'm not, I'm not ready to make that step yet. And what we're confusing there is the content of the sacraments. We're making the secondary thing, our profession of faith, the primary thing. The primary thing in the, in the sacraments is what God is showing to us, that he's showing us Jesus Christ and all of his benefits for us. Uh, take a look um, at, uh, at Colossians chapter 2. This is a really important passage for understanding the sacraments on several different levels, uh, but I want to point out something uh, important here. Um, Colossians chapter 2, it begins, we'll read the whole paragraph beginning in verse 8. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were raised in your trespasses, who, I'm sorry, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, several of the levels that, that are important for us understanding the sacraments here. One is this is a very clear connection of baptism with the Old Testament sign of circumcision. Notice it says there, uh, you were circumcised. He's speaking primarily to Gentiles. This is written to believers in Colossae uh, who would have been mostly Gentiles, who would have been uncircumcised in their flesh. And he's saying, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, not a physical circumcision, a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. So the symbolism of baptism here is a uniting of God's people to Jesus, that we are united to him in his circumcision, and his circumcision counts for ours. We're joined to him in baptism. Now, is this passage talking about a physical rite of circumcision? 
in, in terms of Jesus Christ? Is this referencing on the eighth day when Jesus was brought into the temple uh, and Jesus was presented to the priest uh, and he was dedicated to the Lord and he would have been circumcised then? Is that the reference to what's happening to Christ in this passage? No. No. What is the reference to what's happening to Jesus in this passage? What, is it, what event in Jesus' life is this talking about? Cynthia? So it's, it speaks of being buried. It speaks of being raised again. It speaks of trespasses being nailed to the cross. Now, I'm not raising this as a, as a, uh, a trick question. Uh, sometimes when I used to teach the kids, we'd, we'd play the game, guess what the pastor's thinking. Um, this is not what I'm, I'm asking. No, it, it should be very clear that this is speaking of Christ's circumcision, but it's talking about his death and burial and resurrection. And it's saying that in our baptism, we are united to Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. This is the content of the sacrament of baptism. It, it symbolizes to us all that Christ is and all that he has done. Christ and all of his benefits. He's the content. Now, here's the question. In what way can we say that Jesus' death and burial and resurrection is a circumcision? Cutting flesh? Okay. Take a look back to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, you may know, is the passage where the Lord gives the sign of circumcision to Abraham. And the sign of circumcision comes with both a blessing and a curse. Uh, take a look, we'll skip down to verse 9 of Genesis chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, that you and, I'm sorry, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this sign comes with blessings and curses. What's the blessing? Teresa? That's the symbol. What's the blessing? What does God promise to do for those who, who take this sign in faith? He'll be with him. I will be their God. They will be my people. We, we may have... Um, did we skip over that? I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, 
So, and in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Sorry, we skipped that. My fault. Uh, so here's the blessing, that God will be their God and they will be his people. Now, there's also a curse. If you do not keep this covenant sign, if you break God's covenant, what is the curse? Cut off from among his people. Now, there are two ways of interpreting that. One, that you might be exiled. And two, I think a, a better way of interpreting it is that you would be killed. You would be stoned to death or cut off from God's people as a covenant breaker. You will be removed from the assembly of Israel, and you would have a curse pronounced over you, and you would most likely be put to death as a, a capital punishment. Notice when uh, Moses is about to go back down into Egypt, uh, and uh, the angel of the Lord shows up and is about to kill him because he has not circumcised his son. And so Zipporah comes, and she circumcises his son and saves his life. He was about to be cut off from among his people because he was a covenant breaker. Now, when we look in the New Testament in Colossians, and it says that you were joined to Jesus in baptism in his death, resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection, and this was Jesus' circumcision. Now we see the way that that can happen, the way that, that we can talk about his death and resurrection as a circumcision. It's not the promise, but it's the curse. And there is a promise that we're joined to him and we're joined to, to God's promises, but it's also a reminder that God has given Jesus to take the curse for us. Do you understand what's happening there? So when we say, well, I believe in God, uh, but I, I can't be baptized yet because I'm still working some things out. We go back to the symbol and we say, no, 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 no. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're united to him in faith, you ought to be united to him outwardly in body and baptism because that's a reminder that he's done all the things that you couldn't do, that even though you are a covenant breaker, he has taken all of the, the punishment that you deserve. It speaks of the laws and the ordinances that stood against us and being nailed to the cross. Jesus, it's not insignificant that Jesus was taken outside the gate of the temple, outside the walls of the city, outside where the people would be gathered to be crucified. He was thrown out, he was cut off from among his people. He was thrown out like garbage, basically. And what we see in Colossians is that baptism symbolizes for us all that Jesus is and all that he's done, and that includes taking the punishment for our disobedience. So if we flip this, and if we say the primary thing in the sacraments is the way that I can, can speak of my faith, then we've missed the main point. The main point is what Jesus has done, including giving us the benefits of redemption and taking in our place the curses for covenant disobedience. Does everybody see what's happening there? It's the same thing that shows up in Romans 6, uh, and we won't read it, um, but it says in Romans 6 that you've been uh, united to Christ in his, in his death through baptism, and you'll also be raised, and if we've been united in a death like his, we also will be raised in a life like his. It's this idea that everything that we receive in the Christian life comes from Jesus, comes from our being united to him. Here's the way that Calvin said it. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. 
And this is what is communicated in the sacraments. It is a picture of, in baptism, it's a picture of being united to Christ. And in the Lord's Supper, it's a picture of being sustained by Christ. The scriptures speak of God as the author and the finisher of our faith. I think that's a good way to think of those two sacraments. The sacrament of baptism represents the fact that God is the author, which is why, in, in a sense, it's, what, it's such a wonderful covenant sign when we have infants up here. Uh, and all three of my kids, when they were baptized, just, they didn't squirm, they didn't cry, they didn't do anything. They slept through the whole thing. And some people would look at that and say, oh, come on, that, the child's not even doing anything. They're not engaged, they're not in, they have no idea what's happening to them. They say, well, that's what our salvation is like. You were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. According to the, the prince of the power of the air, the way that we all walked. And we were all children of wrath, but God raised us up with Christ. We are dead in our sins. Dead men can't do anything. Dead men are no more capable of saving themselves than a baby who's, who's just laying there. What a beautiful picture that we have in the sacrament of baptism, this covenant sign that God is the author of our faith. And then we come every week uh, to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and we, we receive food and drink. And, it, and our bodies physically die without food and drink. But it's a reminder that spiritually, unless God is working in us through Jesus Christ, we would wither and die. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Can I do some things? Nothing. Maybe just a little thing? Nothing. If Christ is not sustaining us, if we're not united to him, united to Jesus, and fed by Jesus, everything else is a wash. That's what we find in the sacraments, first and foremost. Uh, so we need to understand the sacraments, these two misunderstandings that we're trying to correct here. One, the direction of the sacraments. They come from the Lord to us. And so we are, we are meant to receive them uh, in faith. And two, that, that they portray to us all that Christ is for us and not all that we are for Christ. That's the way that we sometimes take it. It's less, uh, it's less prevalent to meet somebody uh, who says, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to be baptized. It's less prevalent to meet that than it is to see the person who says, well, I believe in the Lord, but this week I wasn't doing very well, so I probably shouldn't come to the Lord's Supper. And it is effectively an excommunication of yourself with no discipline from the church, with no oversight of any of the officers, you just say, I, I don't feel good about my faith this week. I don't feel good, good about the things that I've done. Now, we are to examine ourselves. We are to take seriously the call to, to judge ourselves rightly before we come to the table. Um, but many of you may know that my favorite larger catechism question uh, speaks of the issue of, well, what do we do if we doubt our preparation for the table should we still come? And the answer is yes. The answer is you, you come in repentance and belief and you receive what is portrayed there for you, that Christ is more sufficient than you could ever be for yourself. So that's the content of the sacrament that conveys to us all that Christ is and all that he's done for his people. Any thoughts before we move on to the next section? Did you get all your questions out last week? Good, good. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yep. 
let's turn. I know you don't have it in front of you, most of you, but the larger catechism question is really helpful here. Uh, it's question 172, and I would encourage you all, if you get a chance later, um, to look through uh, the larger catechism questions uh, regarding the sacraments. They're, they're unusually helpful. Uh, and and I, I don't mean that in the sense that usually they're not very helpful, um, but when we think of the confessions of the Christian faith, a lot of people are really drawn to the Heidelberg because the, the language is just so rich. And uh, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong unto my Lord Jesus Christ, who, you know, all these other things. And it, oh, it's so warm. And we sometimes read the larger catechism and it feels kind of flat. The section on sacraments is so good in the larger catechism. Here's, here's what it says. Um, so it speaks in uh, question 170, how do they that worthily communicate in the Lord's Supper feed upon the body and blood of Christ therein? 171, how do they receive, uh, how should they receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and how should they prepare themselves to come to it? But question 172 says, may one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper? So those two things there. Uh, do you doubt that you belong to Christ? Do you doubt that you've prepared yourself well for the supper? Are you, are you ready to come and feed? I know you don't have the text in front of you. Here's what it says. One who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured thereof. So you may actually belong to the Lord, but you don't have the grace of assurance, which is something that grows in God's people over a period of time. And some people never attain what we might call full assurance of the faith. Uh, and, and for various reasons, just the things that we struggle with, the way sin remains in our heart. It says you may have true interest in Christ, even though you're not yet assured thereof. And in God's account, he has it. That is, he has interest in Christ. He belongs to the Lord if he is duly affected, I love this language, if he is duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it. That sets the bar pretty low. I think intentionally pretty low. I apprehend that I want to be in Christ. I'm not assured thereof. I'm not, you know, if I walk out of this place, oh, my salvation is... Sure in Jesus. Some of us will, will never come to this place spiritually that we'll, we'll experientially be able to say that. But it says, you may have true interest in Christ if you be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ. If you come before the Lord's table and in a sense you've seen your sin, that's the first place to start and you wish to be rid of your sin, that's the second thing you need. And so if, if you have the want of it and you unfeignedly desire to be found in Christ, where's the next line? And to depart from iniquity, in which case, because promises are made and the sacrament is appointed for the relief of even weak and doubting Christians, he is to bewail his unbelief, labor to have his doubts resolved, and so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. So what is this laying out here? The question was, what's the tipping point between when you ought to come and ought not to come? I think the tipping point is 
I, I would counsel anyone that it shouldn't be just a, a one-week decision. This week, I don't feel like it, even though next week and every other week, I, I know that I'm in Christ and I've made vows and I've done all these things and sometimes you have weeks that you come in and, and you just, your heart's not in it. Now, let's be honest. Um, so I would say, one, there ought to be a, a pattern of these things. Two, the pattern uh, that would tell you don't come to the table is if you are, you are ignoring sin, you don't care about sin, and you have no desire to be rid of your sin. You come to the Lord's table and it's spread before you and you go, ah, I don't need this. That's the tipping point. If the pattern in your life is, I don't need what's offered here, don't come to the table. Um, but if you come and you say, I'm not worthy to come to the table because what's offered there is grace and I don't deserve grace, guess what? None of us deserves grace. And that's why we ought to come. And it says, and you should bewail your unbelief labor to have your doubts resolved, and come to the table. So what we need to understand is that, is that as this, uh, this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, is communicating Christ and all that he is and all that he does for us, we can come to the table as a moment of repentance and as a moment of faith. I believe in what is communicated to me here, that Christ has done all that I cannot do, and he will give me all that I cannot gain for myself. And so I don't know if that is, uh, answers exactly where the tipping point is. Um, I would say, however, that if you were at the place in your spiritual walk where there is a sustained pattern that I have no desire to receive what's offered at the table, you ought to be talking to one of your elders. And you ought to be receiving some counsel. And maybe uh, if there is some unrepentant sin that is not being dealt with, maybe it goes into church discipline where, where they tell you you ought not to come to the table. Uh, that is part of the power of the church, uh, that, that we're able to discipline in a formal process, um, but to take it upon yourself to excommunicate yourself from the table because this week I don't feel like I deserve it. I would say that is, that is the wrong way to come to it. And that is to, to misinterpret the communication that's happening here to say that primarily it's about me and not about what Christ has done for me? Good question, though. Good. Um, take a look, uh, the rest of that Westminster section in 27. The, the hinge point is who Christ is. Everything else that follows uh, really revolves on who is Christ for his people. It says that they're instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. Well, how is our interest in him confirmed? Well, by seeing who he is and by knowing that we're joined to him by faith. It says that it puts a visible difference between those that belong to the church and the rest of the world. Well, where does that difference lie between those that are the church and those that are outside in the world? where They've been joined to Christ or they've not been joined to Christ. That's, that's the the reference point there. Solemnly engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Why should we be engaged? Well, we, because we belong to him. And if we love him, we will keep his commandments. The sacraments come back over and over and over again. The content of the sacraments, we ought to understand, is Christ himself. Now, um, the second aspect, and we need to keep the primary primary and the secondary secondary, the secondary aspect of the sacraments is that they are an act of our worship. We spoke last time about some of 
God's other means of, uh, of nonverbal communication, like the rainbow in the sky. Uh, and God says, here's a sign that I will never again flood the earth. Uh, and you don't have to be really involved. Uh, you don't have to take and eat or believe and be baptized or, or be engaged. You just have to see the sign in the sky. Uh, but like the other elements of worship that we've been talking about for the last eight or nine weeks, uh, sacraments are something that we are to be engaged in, something we're to be engaged in in our heart and also our outward bodies. They're an act of worship. Uh, so we're called to be involved in them. Um, and God is the initiator, just like the other ones. God calls us to prayer and praise and to hear his word. God initiates, but we are called to respond. And so that means that, that it, is, uh, it is secondary, but an element of, uh, of the sacraments is our participation in them. Now, you can ask, uh, if you had the chance to, you could ask any Muslim uh, background believer in the Middle East, are you communicating anything by becoming uh, a baptized Christian? Well, yes, they are. Absolutely. Uh, and, and their families will tell you that they are communicating something. Their non-believing Muslim families will not say God is communicating. No, no, they're communicating something that they have turned their back on the rest of the world and on, and on their family and on their faith, and they've gone after this, this Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, and that's what their baptism symbolizes. And so there is a communication aspect that happens when we engage in the sacraments. The same is uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, speaking of the table. Uh, so there's a call to do these things in remembrance of me, but then it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So God is speaking to us in the sacraments, and Paul also says, you're speaking in the sacraments. Who are we speaking to? Who are we proclaiming Christ's death to until he comes? Each other? Absolutely. Isn't it significant that, that we come together to have communion? Isn't it significant that you should not be going home in your own family, in your own home, with your own personal worship service and breaking out some matzah and some grape juice and saying, we're going to have a communion service, because who are you having communion with? We're communicating to one another. We're proclaiming to one another, this is where life and significance is to be found, and we join together and, uh, and we say those words of institution, take and drink, all of you, and we all drink. And we're communicating to one another, we are, we are united in the bond of fellowship of Jesus Christ, and we together, as one body, are waiting for his return. It speaks in Hebrews chapter 10 of, uh, let us not forsake meeting together, as is the habit of some, but let us stir one another up to love and to good works all the more as you see the day drawing near. Proclaiming Christ's death at the sacraments and in the Lord's Supper is part of stirring one another up. And, and, and there's a sense, you know, sometimes, and, and I don't want to dictate where you look when you, when you come to the Lord's Supper, but there are some people and their proclivity is, I have the cup, I have the bread, I'll close my eyes and I'll pray. That's fine, that's good. If, if that's what you do, don't, don't change because of me. Um, but sometimes it's really helpful to take a look around and to see how many other people who are not like you and who aren't in the same life circumstance as you who are also holding a cup and a piece of bread, who are also proclaiming together as one body united in Christ that he's coming back 
And this is what we're waiting for. And we're proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. So we proclaim it to one another. I think we also proclaim it to the world. Especially in the Lord's Supper. Uh, baptism, too, to some degree. It says that it puts a difference between us and the world. Well, the sacraments do that as well. The sacraments, or, or the Lord's Supper, rather. The Lord's Supper does that as well because there is a point at which I'll stand here and say, if you have not been joined to Christ by faith, don't partake. This is not for you. And so all those who aren't able to partake watch everybody else sitting there with their piece of bread and their cup and partaking and waiting on something. And it ought to be a proclamation of the gospel to anyone else who happens to see or to be alongside you while that's happening. And so there is, it's secondary, but there is an, an element that we are also communicating uh, the, uh, the gospel to one another. Um, so what we need to understand, um, this 1 Corinthians passage, that, that uh, the sacraments uh, are both a command and a blessing. We participate in the sacraments both as an act of obedience. What does the Lord say in, uh, or I'm sorry, what do the, uh, the uh, apostles say in Acts chapter 2? Uh, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You notice he, he points them to the sacrifice as an act, I'm sorry, the sacrament. He points them to the sacrament as an act of obedience and faith. What should we do? Command. Repent and be baptized. Obey the Lord and, and what he's saying to you, but there's also a blessing attached to it, and, and they come as an act of faith. Believe that this promise is for you. If we only do one without the other, it turns into every other form of false worship that we engage in. Remember we, we spoke several weeks ago about false worship and the way that it can show up only in outward things or in thinking that we can only have this inward reality without actually responding or reacting in any sort of outward way. And worship is a, is a whole person experience. And so we come to the sacraments with that whole person experience, both as an act of obedience. We do the thing outwardly because God has commanded us to do the thing outwardly. But we engage with our spirits and with our hearts and with faith. Notice that Paul in Romans speaks of those who are circumcised, and he says, uh, all are not Jews who are Jews merely outwardly. But to be a Jew is a matter of the heart, and it's inward by faith. And he's speaking of the Old Testament sacrament. He's saying, if you only do the thing as an act of obedience and nothing else, then you haven't really gained anything. But if we think that we can only have this, this tiny little spiritual thing where I'll, I'll be over in, in, on my own in this little huddle, and I'll, I'll just have the spiritual experience and, and never express it in any way or express it in the way that God calls me to express it, uh, then we've missed something really important. Teresa. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. The deacons may not. Uh, the elders can. 
Uh, and that happens through a process of formal church discipline. Um, that uh, the, the elders in the church uh, are called in 1 Corinthians stewards of the mysteries of God. Yes. Normally, the way that it happens, and, and thankfully, I have not been involved in a formal discipline case that has gone that far while I've been in ministry. So I'm guessing from what I read and from what I understand from other pastors, uh, but um, normally the way it happens is that someone professes belief, but they are living in blatant, unrepentant sin that denies the belief that's coming out of their mouth. You understand what I'm saying? So take, for instance, discipline normally happens in the church, most often happens in the church, uh, for sexual sin. Uh, you have uh, the, the 19-year-old who goes off to college and, and comes home with a boyfriend or a girlfriend that they're sexually engaged with, and they're saying, no, 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 I'm a believer, but I can do this thing. And we're saying, the thing that you're doing and the thing that you're not concerned about and this sin that you don't seem to care about uh, is denying the profession of faith that's coming out of your mouth. Or very often it happens when someone divorces their wife or their husband, has an affair, and they say, no, no, I'm, I'm actually on top of my spiritual game. I'm having the best quiet times that I've ever had in my entire life. And it's really because of this new person the Lord has brought into my life. And, and I don't need to, to stay with my spouse. And we'd say, the actions that you're committing are denying the faith that you're professing. That's normally the way that discipline happens. Um, and so, yes, the, the elders of the church in that situation are called upon uh, to remove that person from the table. So there's a series of steps. It uh, begins with warning that person, calling them to repentance. If they do not repent, then it moves to a season of removal from the table. The elders may ask that person, don't come to the Lord's Supper because you are clearly not taking seriously the gospel uh, and, and the forgiveness of sin that is being symbolized here. There's a season of that, and we and we would test again for repentance. And if there is continual unrepentance, not only would we remove them from the table, but we would strike their name from the rolls of the church and say, you are no longer a member, despite your outward profession of faith. So, yes, uh, the elders in the church, and that's also in the in the Westminster, uh, may someone who professes faith be kept from the Lord's table. Uh, it's in the larger catechism. Uh, yes, the, the elders have the, the authority in the church to do that. Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so so it, it normally happens um, with sexual sin because those ones are easy to identify. Theoretically, church discipline can happen and ought to happen for all sorts of sins that are unrepentant. No, 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 no. Not, 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 not an idea of, okay, well, we believe, in, um, we believe in God's sovereignty, but you don't believe in God's sovereignty, so we're going to excommunicate you. No. Uh, not, not, it's not a doctrinal exam to see if you align. Um, but if you were to, to come out with, say, let me use you as an example. If Teresa were to come to the church and say, I don't believe that Jesus is the Savior. I believe that God worked on his own, and the person that we believe was Jesus was not actually Jesus. We'd say, you're denying the gospel, Teresa. And you need to repent of that, and you need to believe that Jesus is the Savior. And you say, no, no, I don't want to. We'd say, you shouldn't come to the table. 
Now, if you were to say, uh, I don't think we should be baptizing babies, we'd say, we disagree with you, um, but yeah, you can still come to the table. This is, this is not a, a, oh, that's thin ice there. Um, that's not an, an issue where we would say, you are denying the gospel. You have a different understanding about some doctrinal issues, but it's not a denial of the gospel. Come to the table. If you, if you don't believe that, still come to the table. As long as you believe that the Lord is your Savior, you've been joined to him, you've made profession of your faith, uh, and you've been joined to a church where these sacraments are administered, come to the table. Yeah, if you've got little doctrinal quibbles, that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, and it's not an issue of, well, uh, I might believe in evolution, or I might not believe in evolution, or I might believe in the flood, or not a worldwide flood, or all of these little things. Uh, no, that's, that's not... Uh, I think those are serious things to consider, uh, and, and anyone who holds those things, I'd want to talk to you, and, and let's think through these issues, but there are differences of, of understanding between believers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kathy? Hopefully, it would work that way. Um, generally, people who are under discipline don't see it that way. Um, <laughs> uh, but those that are committed to discipline and seeing discipline done well in the church would say that, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. And again, I'd come back to this idea of if, if you feel so spiritually dead that you don't believe what is being proclaimed at the table and in the proclamation of the word, you ought to be talking to somebody. There's a, there's a church full of elders who would love to talk to you and, and help you understand what's going on and, uh, and understand what's happening in your own heart. Uh, and then one of, the, one of the vows that you take as a member is to submit to the government and the discipline of the church. And so if the elders would say, we think you should refrain from the table for a season uh, as a means of testing your faith and repentance, then that's, that's an important thing as well. Um, but, but that's sort of one week thing where I don't feel like it, uh, or I don't, you know, um, I think that falls short of the mark. Yeah, we're not trying to get to the point, let's see how many people we can excommunicate this month. No, 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 no. Um, but discipline, and, and you see that very clearly in Paul uh, in the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, and he says, let's take a look there. Rather than me try to remember it, uh, trying to remember it off the top of my head. Let's get it straight from the apostle's mouth. Oh. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So that sounds like excommunication, cut off from the people, removed from among you. Um, but then he goes to tell us the reason for this excommunication. He says, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I am already, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's an awful lot happening in this, this passage. Uh, but if you were to go to 2 Corinthians and flip over there, Notice that in, in that 1 Corinthians passage, he said uh, the reason, uh, turn over his flesh to Satan so that his soul may be saved. What's, what's happening there? Um, where is it? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe. Scholars are, uh, debate on whether this is talking about the same person. I, I happen to be of the mind that it is talking about the same person. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning of verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So he's referencing something that he wrote previously. He wants them to be obedient, and they've been harsh to one person, and he's saying, no, 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 don't go too far, but reaffirm your love for them and comfort them. This was the point that he was getting at before with the excommunication and the church discipline, removing from the table, um, that he wants the person to be brought back in, to recognize the seriousness of their sin and be brought back to the community uh, of the church. Okay? Does everybody see the, the goal there of discipline? Do the same thing in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Jesus lays it out. Uh, if anyone offends you, go to him privately, tell him his fault. Uh, if he listens to you, great, you've won your brother. Discipline stops at that point. But if not, take one or two others with you uh, and confront them. If, they doesn't, if he doesn't listen to one or two others, take him before the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. But that very first step, Jesus says, if they repent and if they come back, case closed. That's the, that's the end game. That's the goal you're trying to get to, uh, is to reclaim the, the erring brother or sister. Now, I want to wrap up, come back to thinking specifically about sacraments, um, wrap up what we've seen so far. We, we've seen uh, that the sacraments are communication from the Lord, uh, to show us his promises uh, and the one that he gave to confirm those promises, Jesus Christ. They're communication from him, and it's something that we are to be engaged in uh, through obedience and also faith. Something that we do, but something we do believing in God's promises. And the way that we can tie this all together is to use that all-important Reformed word, is to say that the sacraments are a covenant, when we come week after week to the Lord's table, it is, in a sense, a covenant renewal ceremony. We are brought into the covenant through baptism uh, and, and through not just baptism of the body, but, but uh, through faith, so outward and inward. 
And as we come week after week to the table, we are renewing the covenant that the Lord uh, has made with his people. We are saying again, yes, this is where I belong. This is where uh, truth is to be found. This is where life and forgiveness and grace can be had. And we commit ourselves, in a sense, again to the Lord, but we do it because he's committing himself again to us. That's why it's so important that we come week after week, or at least regularly in most churches every month or once a quarter, so we see that reminder again and again and again, not just that we commit ourselves to the Lord, but he commits himself to us. It reminds us, us of his covenant faithfulness. And if that's the only thing you get from this class, uh, that it's, uh, from, from this particular session, uh, that it, it communicates God's commitment to his people over and over and over and over again, uh, we'll be doing well in the sacraments. And so we come today and we'll see again God's commitment for his people. Let me pray, and we'll get on uh, to the next thing. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, our God, we thank you for your blessing, and we thank you for your sacraments. We thank you for the way that they convey to us Christ and all that he is and all that he has done for us. We pray that you would give us hearts of faith to receive gladly uh, the, uh, the gospel that is portrayed in uh, the sacraments, the gospel that is sealed to us, uh, this authenticating mark. Help, help us to rejoice uh, and your promises to us, and help us to believe your gospel for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. No, 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 no. Questions are always welcome. We do not think that women are inferior, but we do believe that the Apostle Paul has told us that women ought not to be in positions of authority in the church, uh, because Paul has said. Um, so, we, well, so we, we looked at this when we went through 1 Corinthians, and let me show it to you. Uh, he ties it back to the order of creation. Uh, so something that happened pre-fall in the way that God has created man and woman to live together. Here's what it says, and we, we looked at this. Oh. So where is does it specifically say they're equal? I mean, men and women yeah. are equal. So it says in Galatians chapter, let me find it. I mean, I don't ever want to be part of the sure. elders or sure. deacons, never. Yeah. But the point is, they don't have it in the Presbyterian church. Not, not in our PCA church. There are, like the PCUSA church, they would ordain women. Um, and I would say that they do that because they have denied what Paul very clearly lays out in Scripture. Now, where we get into this, and, and the argument starts to come where they say, well, if you don't allow women to be elders, then you're saying that they're inferior. But yeah. that's not what we're saying. Uh, we're saying, uh, let, me, let me find, oh, where is it? I think it, it happens once in Colossians and once in Galatians where Paul says, for in Christ there is neither uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Oh, where is it? It's okay. So it says it in, in Galatians. It also says it in Colossians. And, and the point that spiritually, like in reference to our salvation, our value before the Lord, uh, that we are the same. That he looks on men and women and he says, 
yeah, I, I, I love both of you equally. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that he is not allowed to assign different roles for those that he loves equally. Think of the marriage relationship. Uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. Women, submit to your husbands. Yeah, right. 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 Now, does that mean that women are inferior? No, but they have, but they have a different role in the family. They also have a different role in the church. So we looked at it in 1 Corinthians. Uh, well, no, there are lots of gifts that women can use in the church. Uh, here, let me go right to, the, right to the point here. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I think what he's talking about here is official teaching in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 33. Okay. He also says it in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2 will begin in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And then verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. That is why we say women ought not to be in positions of spiritual authority. Because Paul very clearly says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, are women inferior? No. Uh, in many cases, the, the women of our church have gifts that our men don't have. And a lot of the women are the ones that sort of subtly control the men, right? Uh, I don't think that happens in our no? church. I don't no? think so. I don't think so. Um, certainly not from our leadership. Um, the elders in the church, there are a lot of wives in the church that have no idea what the elders talk about in our elder meetings, as it should be. Um, now, the, the model for this, as it shows up, so he's, he's giving us uh, equality on spiritual standing, right? Neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, in Christ, they're all one. So in terms of salvation and our value before the Lord, completely equal. But in terms of role in the church, there's a difference. Men ought to teach and exercise authority. Women ought to not exercise authority and teach. And not speak. And not speak. And I, I think that is... No, no, no. And so, I, so there's a difference of interpretation. Some people would say, well, Teresa, you shouldn't ask a question in Sunday school because women shouldn't speak in church. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I would, I would say that, that that means official teaching. So what I do in the front, what, uh, what the elders do in the front, that's the official teaching of the church. We would say we're not going to allow women to hold that position in the church. Now, the, the model is the same thing as, as the marriage relationship. If you were to look in Ephesians chapter 5 where it talks about uh, men love your wives, women submit to your husbands, it makes a reference there be, between God and Christ. God is Christ. Christ is Christ, God. Right. Between the Son and the Father. Okay. Between the Son and the Father. Right. Let's take a look. 
<laughs> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Yeah. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, oh, yeah. and is himself its Savior. Yeah. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. Um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. You might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Um, where is it? It might be in the First Corinthians 11 passage. That's okay. So it, no, 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 no. But it speaks in First Corinthians, chapter 11. Um, where is it? Here it is. I want you to understand, and this is talking about head coverings. This is talking about worship, right? In the church. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ 